it's been discussed a little bit in the academic literature on consumer financials is a credit score report with your credit card every month. So some research has shown that if you each month when you get your bill, if it actually shows you your current credit score and you, for example, see it declining, that would be a motivator to, okay, wait a minute, what's going on here? I need to improve that. Hello, thanks for being here. This is Strictly Money, where finance and your prosperity meet. I'm Sejal Patel. We have a great show for you today. Now, if you didn't see the latest news on Canadian household debt, hold your breath. I'm going to share it with you. Stats Canada has just revealed that the majority of Canadians now have more debt than savings. It's a huge problem because none of us can debt our way to retirement or financial freedom. Now, is it all our fault? No, there are economic factors that are affecting our ability to save. But there are also things that we do, our spending habits, how we make financial decisions that's putting us in debt. And that is what we are going to talk about today. June Cott is a marketing professor at Ivy Business School at Western University. She focuses on consumer behavior and decision making, why people get addicted to gambling, and marketing tactics that get us to spend. And we are going to cover it all. Welcome to Strictly Money, June. I'm so excited to have you here and for the conversation that we're about to have. Oh, thank you for having me. So unless people have been living under a rock, we know that there is a rising debt problem and in particular credit cards, but, but also mortgages. And, and logically, June, we know that we should spend less than we earn, except most of us don't do that. And, and there's really a cost to this, isn't there? Because people are stressed out. They're not able to meet their goals. So why do people spend on things that they probably shouldn't spend on, especially all these frivolous things. What's going on? Well, let's start by talking about cards in general, because really about 65% of global point of sales are done by card. So there's a huge convenience factor to paying by a card, whether it's a credit card or a debit card. And so I think we just need to be clear about that. That is a convenience factor that people like. There's also a growth in credit card use as people think they need to use a credit card to build a credit rating, for example, um, and which we know isn't true, but there's a widespread perception that, well, I have to have a credit card to build a credit score or credit. Is it not true? No, I think you can build a credit rating paying your utility bills, you know, having a good rent payment history, for example, and just in general, being a responsible consumer, you might need to get a credit card at some point. But I think there's far too much perception that we need to have, you know, a lot of credit cards, or at least one big credit card to build our credit rating. So so I see why people get started. It's a perfectly logical reason why people get started. But what happens is, For some consumers, they use a credit card as an emergency fund instead of savings, which is where you start to get into some trouble. It's more painful to pay with cash. And so when you pay with a credit card, it just seems a little bit easier. It doesn't seem as though you're actually spending. So you don't have that psychic, like, oh, I'm giving money over. And so those things can contribute to spending more than you probably should. 
it's a little bit easier to budget with a credit card and statement, for example. So we some research by a team from Stanford showed when you use cash, you use it often to purchase something you don't want to justify. So a bottle of wine or some chocolate, it's easier to not have a paper trail of those kinds of purchases. So there are reasons why credit cards are useful, but we have let them get out of hand. And, and you mentioned something uh, right up front, which is when we use credit cards now, for frivolous spending or even good spending like for a piece of furniture, but that we really can't afford, there is a short-sighted tendency to forget that that is going to curtail our spending in the future. You know, if we spend too much on credit now, we are in fact dooming ourselves to be able to buy less later, whatever we choose to spend on. And June, you made a really interesting point, cash versus, you know, credit card. Technology has not made this problem easier hasn't it? Because I'm just thinking when you're tapping or using Apple Pay, for example, your brain doesn't associate the fact that you're actually paying for something. Am I right? That's right. It's it's much less painful. Um, and, and it's why and um, we use chips in a casino. It's much less painful than opening your wallet and handing over cash. And so it does definitely make the whole transaction feel less painful to consumers psychologically. Is the way that we are marketed to June also to blame? I mean, and I say this because marketers have so much data on us, especially if we're, you know, scrolling and using social media and and they know how to tap into our emotions. It's like buy this and be happy or, or buy this and be likable and, and even lovable. So how much does marketing tactics have to do with this? A lot. And, you know, I came across something recently that you know, it was quite alarming, which is, it's sort of related to this topic, which is the gamification of um, credit card points, but more importantly, investment applications. So for example, Robinhood, um, investment apps that allow you to, you know, build wealth, that's the purpose of investing, except with the gamification, there's a team of researchers showed that from University of Arizona, that when you gamify these things, consumers take more risks. So by adding in things like leaderboards and badges, consumers are motivated to win the game, not just build wealth. So there's one marketing tactic that, you know, this is a good thing, an investment vehicle, but by gamification or by adding points and tiers, we can encourage consumers to take more risky choices. Other more mundane marketing tactics, you know, buy one, get one free. That appeals, you know, to that feeling of getting something free. But in fact, you know, consumers need to stop and say, do I even need one of these things, let alone two of these things? Other tactics would be, you know, artificially price comparing. So compared to the original price of $500 or something like that, and they've got it listed for $100, well, you know, nobody would have paid $500, for example. And, you know, artificially raising that comparison price makes consumers psychologically feel like they're getting a bigger deal than they are. So June, you hit on something really interesting, and I want to cover this. When we were talking about gamification, let's talk about gambling. Because this is something you cover. Now, I don't know if you saw this or our, our listeners or viewers saw this, but I would really urge you to go back and, and watch this because CBC Marketplace just talked about this. They reported on sports betting and they said that you spend up to 20% of every game watching gambling advertising. So what they did is they watched, I think it was um, five NHL games and two NBA games, and they found that people were exposed to logos or commercials or sponsored adverts every three minutes. 
To me, that is incredibly concerning, especially when I think about young adults. Absolutely. So gambling is one of those aspects that I have studied. And when you have it in the home, it's very different than gambling used to be when it was in a casino. And so when you talk about the commercials and the advertising, so for many people that don't have a problem with gambling, yes, they're exposed to all those ads and they can just tune them out. But if you have a problem with gambling, if you have begun to gamble, if you are uh, you know, a young adult that maybe doesn't have the defenses yet around um, resisting that appeal, now it's in your home and you are being bombarded by messages. And by the way, you can pick up your phone, which is likely sitting right beside you, and gamble while you watch. Um, and so that gambling in the home becomes more mundane. And that's a problem because it's seen as safer. So my research has shown that when gambling is done in the home, it's tendly seen as less dangerous, less risky. It is not any less dangerous or less risky. It is just perceived to be that way. So that's interesting um, because I was thinking about what could be going through a sports better's vines, right? Especially because I have seen this with, with friends and relatives, it, it, there's this social aspect to it. You know, they get online with their buddies and, and they're, it, it's again, gamification and seeing who can outwin the other person. But if you're alone, I'm assuming no one's watching what you're doing. So there's more of a temptation. Is that it? Yes, it could be more of a temptation. But I, I think the research that I've done has shown that it's less likely that you'll stop. So if you think about it, you know, whether it's at home or online, as you said, with your buddies, if you're treating it as a game and you've gone out as an event, whether it's to a casino or like you said, getting online to, during a game, you might have preset spending limits. You've got your friends there with you. They can tell you, hey, you know, are you sure you don't want to stop versus either going to a casino by yourself, but more likely online by yourself. It is less likely that there are supports around you to help you stop when you need to stop. It becomes less of an event. And as I said, more of a mundane sort of, oh, this is what I do when I watch sports. I just gamble the whole time. Is gambling addiction going up? Well, most studies say the percentage of addicted gamblers or problem gamblers is pretty consistent. The problem is the number of gamblers has ratcheted up drastically. So if the percentage is 1%, 2%, but the actual number of people gambling has gone up a lot, then the number of people with problems is also rising. So it isn't that the percentage is changing, it's that the number's rising. And yes, it is definitely rising because it's ubiquitous now. It's so easy to gamble. You know, if you even think 20, 30 years Years ago, you pretty much had to fly to Vegas or Atlantic City or potentially, you know, an indigenous run casino, but you had to go somewhere. Now that's not the case. Gambling is all around us, as are the cues, as you point out, the advertisers cues to trigger that urge to gamble. Yeah, you know, the baked in sludge <laughs> tended to work right now. It's so much more accessible Tune, what are your thoughts on lottery? So lotteries are interesting, you know, I mean, they're often disparagingly called, you know, a tax on the poor. And I think that for people with, you know, solid income and no problems with debt, you know, the occasional Lotto 649 ticket is not going to break the bank. And so I think that there is a couple of types of lotteries. One, I'll use Lotto 649, for example, in Ontario, where you might buy a ticket on Monday for 10 million, or if you're in the US and it's Powerball, it's a billion <laughs> So you have a few days before the draw. And really what those tickets are, are buying you is sort of hope 
and dreams. And you can spend a few days thinking about what to do to spend the money. And I don't think there's necessarily anything particularly dangerous if that's a once in a while kind of spending. But then you get to sort of the scratch-off lottery tickets, and those are a lot more like, I would say, akin to a slot machine, where, you know, you buy and you win or lose immediately. And so I think those are, you know, kind of qualitatively different. But both, whether it's the the sort of the big lottos or the scratch-off tickets, can contribute to problematic behavior um, if someone, you know, is somebody who has poor impulse control or, or who has run into some gambling issues. Wow, fascinating stuff, June. We are going to uncover a lot more. But first, we're going to take a commercial break and hear from our sponsors, BMO ETFs, whom without I could not do this show for free. So we'll take a pause and we'll be right back. Are you looking to enhance the level of cash flow from your investments? BMO ETFs has you covered with their Covered Call ETFs. These ETFs generate cash flow from two sources, the dividend yield from the underlying securities and the premium generated from selling the call options. BMO Covered Call ETFs strike a balance between generating cash flow and participating in the growth of rising markets with your experienced portfolio management team and effective strategy with over 10 years of history. BMO ETFs is the largest covered call ETF provider in Canada, covering 13 covered call ETFs across a range of strategies across regions, countries, and sectors. Visit BMOETFs.com to learn more. Please read the ETF facts or prospectus of the BMO ETFs before investing. Men, plug your ears. Ladies, did you know that Strictly Money is also the name of my holistic online financial program exclusively designed for women and by a woman? That would be me. If you struggle on how to build the right plan to get you to financial freedom, then this is an absolute must. Join my free money masterclass using the link in the show notes. I'll teach you my trademarked framework and so much more. See you soon. Welcome back. I'm here with June Cott. Uh, June, I want to circle back to debt because again, so many people have debt problems. And what I have discovered is that for many people, when they have debt, they tend to actually bury it. They tend to feel like, hey, if I don't have to deal with this, the problem's not there. And yet we know it's there and they need to take action. What do you think is going on? So research that I've done with some of my colleagues here at Ivy and with a company called Financial Fundamentals in Calgary worked with us. And what we discovered recently was there's this major amount of anticipated stigmatization. So we weren't looking necessarily about what got people into credit card problems in the first place. That's a sort of separate study. But once people are heavily indebted, particularly with credit cards, what we found is that they're very reluctant to admit that. There is a a huge amount of worry about what other people will think if they find out. Um, It's one of the few things we still don't talk about, which is our financial situation and our, our debt situation in particular. And so they hide it. And the problem with hiding it is, of course, you know, you maybe you're not seeking help to get out of debt, but also it can lead to a cycle of increasing that debt. And so let me explain how that works. I mean, you have a, let's say you've got $25,000 on credit cards and you're, you know, kind of barely making the minimum payments. 
But you're in a middle-class neighborhood and your child plays on a sports team. And the other parents, for example, want to have everybody chip in some money to get extra coaching or extra ice time or something like that. You would have to admit that you have a credit problem to be able to opt out of that offer. And so there's a lot of peer pressure felt and people worry about what other people will say. And so they just spend more to stay you know, in that realm of not having to admit they have a problem. On a more mundane situation, you know, your coworkers might ask you to go out for lunch. You really can't afford to eat out this week, but you don't want to, again, have to admit that you can't put it on your card. And so you split the bill and, you know, you take, uh, take more debt on. And so that hiding and that shame around hiding can actually contribute to increasing your debt, not just help, you know, avoid helping get out of debt. It can actually increase the debt. I'm so glad that you raised this, June, because peer pressure is something that I see. Um, and it's a big problem because a lot of people who I even coach will say, yeah, I have debt or I don't really want to spend this much, but how do I say no and not look bad or look cheap? And I try to remind them that, you know, I say, hey, look, if you are feeling this way, I can guarantee you that someone else in the group is probably feeling the same way and not speaking up. So try to lead by example. What are your thoughts? I mean, how, how does someone get around that then? You know, I, I like to talk about this with an analogy of weight loss because, you know, what's proven quite effective in that domain are something called if-then statements. And so if you set up yourself to go to the gym at a certain time or if somebody offers me a donut, this is what I'm going to say. We need to kind of use that same strategy in debt. So creating situations where you have an answer ready. And, you know, I would hope, as you said, that we could feel more comfortable leading by example and talking about debt. But for those people that aren't going to be comfortable talking about debt, then they need a way to get out of that situation. And so whatever it might take for them uh, to create a way out is what they need to practice ahead of time. Um, because then you're not sort of constructing in the moment um, an excuse or feeling bad. And so if you have an if then, you can say, all right, if I'm asked to go to a restaurant or after work drinks and I can't afford it, then then I'm going to say this. You know, and it's a strategy that you can just practice and and use. Um, it sounds, I mean, it's easier said than done. I understand that. But it, but thinking about it ahead of time um, can help you create uh, ways to extricate yourself from a situation that will make you feel uncomfortable. Does debt counseling or even group therapy work? And, and the reason I'm asking you this is, and I'm just, I mean, this is a completely different, but I think about AA, you know, um, being around people who might understand your situation where there might not be that shame and stigma. I'm curious to know whether that would help. Yes, I think that, you know, our research shows that that kind of environment helps more than individual one-on-one -on -one coaching, for example. And it is at the heart because of this anticipated stigmatization. If you can talk about this without judgment, with other people that are struggling through it, share tips and tricks, for example, in that group situation, those kind of if-then scenarios can be shared. Like, oh, when that happened to me, this is how I got out of it. So you get support you get less judgment or no judgment, and you get practical sort of tactics that can help you that other people have used as well. And so I think the AA example is a good one. It's a good uh, analogy here. Individual credit counseling, of course, for people, you know, for some people that will be very helpful. But honestly, in our research and other people's research, it's not really a math problem. Middle-class people making good salaries who have 
extraordinary amounts of credit card debt, they know how compound interest works, but they've gotten themselves into a problem that they're having trouble getting out of now. So teaching them that they should pay off their credit cards is not as helpful as you know helping them walk through exactly how we're going to do this. What are the strategies? How will you say these things? How will you get out of these situations? Um, um, so it's not necessarily about you know financial literacy. It's much more about support and seeking help and not keeping secrets. You know, June. Um, and again, I I teach this, and I'm so glad you mentioned that because as much as I talk about financial literacy. Again, you know, we know that you can't appeal to logic. I mean, logic, logically, we know we're not supposed to spend um, more than we should. We, we know that we're supposed to plan for retirement and, and save earlier. It's the emotional piece, right? And so I, I like the fact that you mentioned the if then and preparing yourself because then you can sort of visualize yourself in that situation and feel exactly how you think you might feel and, and work your way around that. Right. And one of the things I was thinking about is is a marketing tactic, for example, that you would want to prepare yourself for. So what is increasingly happening in the marketing world are the uh, at point of sale appeals for credit or installment payments. So, you know, you're at the checkout, you're buying something that you can afford, like you're not buying it on credit. Maybe it's a $100 outfit or something like that. And they say, oh, well, you know, you could get 15% off if you get credit right now or get our credit card, or you could pay now and pay some of it later. Online, this is happening more and more, right? So you can buy $100, you could pay for it $12 at a time or something like that. Those kinds of things, you need to, if you have a problem with credit, you need to really plan ahead for those because in fact, a 15% discount does make financial sense, but then you're going to be left with a new card. And, you know, are you going to cut that card up once you've paid off this $100, for example? So you really have to think that through. Um, for some people, that would be perfectly fine to do. But for other people, that could lead to, um, you know, a bit of a spiral of spending that they probably shouldn't get into in the first place. And not to mention the impact that that could have on your credit score, right? Because when you're applying for too many of these retail cards, they're called hard hits and it, it can impact your credit score because these companies are going, you know, why are you applying for so many credit cards? Do you have a problem? Um, so cir circling back, I guess, or, or talking about credit cards, what do you suggest people do? I mean, do you have an ideal number? of credit cards someone should have? I don't have any research on that, but I have, you know, sort of anecdotes, which a lot of people have two. And what are the two for? Personal and work. That would make sense to me. That's actually what I do. So it'd be just because it helps me to organize my expenses for work versus my personal expenses. But for many people, if you're not traveling a lot for work or if you don't have a lot of work expenses, one is probably fine. I mean, really, you don't need to have lots of credit. And, you know, people who have credit problems rotate around their cards, which is problematic. So they pay one off with the other one. And so um, if you can just have one and, and live with one, then you have the convenience of it. You have the, you know, the credit building, but you don't necessarily have the tendency to move balances around, for example. I have three. And I'll tell you, I used to have two June. So I have one, obviously, for business. I have my personal one, but I ran into a problem where it got hacked and they had to cancel it and then they weren't sending me one for seven days so I was without a credit card so I learned my lesson and I got a spare I don't use it I don't use it it's just sitting there in case I need it so that's actually that's so you reminded me I have a Costco one. Oh. 
There you so go. I do have three <laughs> because as a Costco member, you need to have their credit card. So that's, I don't use it other than when I go to Costco. So you're right. I, we do have three. What's your thought on debit then? Do you think debit cards are better for people who have or may have debt problems? Yes, they are. They have built-in limits. And so I understand the convenience of cards, but anybody that has either worried about a possibly developing a credit problem or has gotten out of a credit problem and does not want to build it back up, you should be spending with a debit card because it is limited to how much you've been able to put in your bank account. Is there anything, um, June, that you would like to see in, in terms of maybe regulation or policies that you think could help? I mean, one of the things, and, and you and I spoke about this offline, but one of the things, and I don't actually know if this exists, but I would love to see, you know, for people who are using their Apple Pay or even debit or credit, something pop up, a notification that says, hey, you've spent, you know, this much this month, and perhaps, you know, you have X as your goal, and you're reaching that point, because I think that would be a reminder for people to say, Oh, wait a minute, you know, I'm, I'm at my spending limit. But that's just me. And I and I again, I don't know if that exists. But is there anything that you would love to see that you think would help people? So I was thinking about this after we discussed it. And I actually think an app like you're describing would be fantastic, much like Netflix, where it says, Are you still watching? You know, do you still want to continue to play? I think that would be very, very useful. I was trying to think of something else. And one of the things I thought about would be an and it's been discussed a little bit in the academic literature on consumer financials is a credit score report with your credit card every month. So some research has shown that if you each month when you get your bill, if it actually shows you your current credit score and you, for example, see it declining, that would be a motivator to, okay, wait a minute, what's going on here? I need to improve that. So that's one thing to think about. Um, I think there are things that we could do on the bill um, that are not... You know, they're not um, draconian restrictions, but um, they could um, uh, have a cooling off period, for example. So no immediate credit increases. Um, so I would say, you know, show the credit score on the monthly bill. Have a cooling off period so that when people start to spend more, they don't automatically get a higher credit rating. Um, and I think those two things would would help. I love the budgeting app that you're talking about that sort of shows people how much they've been spending in different categories. I think that would be very, very useful. Yeah, I love that idea of um, a credit score with a credit card statement. Again, you know, all these little sort of nudge things that just reminds people, right? I love it. I really appreciate your insights today, Jude. Thanks so much for coming on. Now, before I let you go, though, I have my guests answer three rapid fire questions. They're really easy <laughs> and they're personal. So uh, you don't have to worry about, you know, having not studied for this. Uh, ready? Yep. Okay. What is the best financial advice you've received? Pay off credit cards always every month. <laughs> Good one, right? <laughs> and so appropriate. <laughs> What is the worst financial advice you've received? When I was a young adult, oh, buy furniture on a buy now, pay next year plan. Oh, really? Yep, because I didn't save enough. And so the next year came and I had a giant balloon payment that I ended up having to put on credit for a short time. So that's a good point that you make. I did that once. Um, I did pay it off. I didn't realize, and I don't know how many people do realize that if you don't pay it off, that interest has accrued all the way from the beginning, right? Absolutely. Yep. So you get you get hit pretty hard. If there is one piece of advice that you could give people who are thinking about improving their financial health, what would it be? It doesn't have to be debt related, but 
It could be anything. So I, this is actually related to your earlier question about policy, um, because it's I was you saw I was probably struggling to think of what else I wanted to say there. There was another thing I'd love to see credit card companies do, but consumers could do this for themselves as well. When you have a credit card statement, if you are using credit cards and you cannot pay your full balance off each month, I would love the statement to show how long it will take and how much it will cost if you continue to just make minimum payments. But I would say for consumers, you can do that as well. I mean, especially consumers with reasonable math skills. If you have to only pay the minimum payment, you should also force yourself to figure out what that means for you. Because it is, I think most people would be surprised by how little they're going to get out of debt by, well, they're not going to get out of debt paying the minimum payment. And so, especially with interest rates the way they are now. And so if they could just sort of look at it like they would look at a mortgage and realize how long that would take to pay, that would, I think, help them see sort of the longer term view. Yeah. And and they would see the true cost of their purchase. I love that. I love your tips and I love your ideas. We just got to try to push them forward and somehow get them implemented. June, thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. June Cott, Craft Professor of Marketing at Ivy Business School. Well, that does it for this show. Now, don't forget to catch our previous shows. We have ideas on where to invest, how to fix the housing crisis, and how to beat rising insurance premiums, and so, so much more. So don't miss past and future episodes. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel as well as Apple Podcasts. We'll see you back here next week. Until then, stay well, stay wise, and stay welcome.